Rex Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Hello, this is Scott Martis. Welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. My guest today is author Max Hawthorne, and we're going to be talking about various subjects, but primarily the release of his latest installment in the Kronos Rising series called Kronos Rising Kraken Volume 3, Winter Taste All. Hello, Max. Hello, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Now, uh, the new book was released exactly when? End of July? Uh, no, the release date was Independence Day, the 4th of July. I uh, requested that date from my guys personally, you know, with everything going on with the whole, you know, pandemic, et cetera. I thought it would be nice that a lot of people, you know, have something to read. And obviously, if you couldn't get to the beach or you could, you have something to take with you, you know, that kind of thing. So we pushed it ahead a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, right now, with all this going on, people with all this free time, it's a great time to be reading books. Yeah, yeah, I wish I could catch up on some of my reading, but I'm stuck writing them. <laughs> yeah, well, you've been on the show several times. Now, why don't you, for people that are not familiar with your series, why don't you give a brief outline of what the story's about and where it started and how it's evolved? Sure. Um, well, let's see. I mean, uh... An overview, I mean, the hashtag Jaws Meets Jurassic Park was originally coined um, by a reader in, in reference to my first novel, um, so which was re- written in '05, but didn't come out until 2014 for complicated reasons. But anyway, um, but basically the story, the concept was sort of like... Uh, well, I guess you'd say it would kind of would be Jaws meets Jurassic Park. I set up a uh, kind of backstory. I wanted to have the, a prehistoric marine reptile known as a pliosaur, uh, a species I actually designed myself, customized, I guess you'd say, for the book. Um, but that one of these animals was alive in the present, possibly the sole survivor of a relic population, and that all of a sudden it starts having encounters with people and, you know, doing what any other gigantic apex predator will do that's been released into a new environment. It's going to seek out new territory. It's going to feed. It's going to look for a mate. You know, everything that comes with, you know, the the animal's nature. But uh, to make the story original, I wanted to come up with an explanation as to how, you know, a, a breeding population of these animals would be alive to the pre- you know to the present and be undiscovered by people all this time. I mean that's always the thing when you're talking marine cryptids or lake cryptids, etc. You know Nessie or anything else in between. You know there's always the question of well there can't be just one of these animals. Bigfoot's not immortal. You know so there has to be hundreds, if not thousands, or tens of thousands of these things out there to have a viable breeding population. And then, of course, you run into, well, where are all these animals? How come people aren't seeing them? How come we're not seeing any carcasses? Things of that nature. <clears throat> and you wanted it to be believable. You know, 
I mean, there's been so many things that have been done. I mean, like creatures frozen in ice have been around since, uh, I don't know, the deadly mantis, and I think the beast from 20,000 fathoms might have started off being frozen in ice. Uh, when you come to stuff that's in the water, um, I mean, Robin Brown, when he came out with the first Megalodon book in 1981, you know, he had the, his sharks surviving in the deep water abysses there, having adapted to life thousands and thousands of feet down. And this was an explanation why they weren't being encountered, because they had their own ecosystem down there. And it was a very good book. But I wanted something new and original and something that would, keeping in mind I'm dealing with an air-breathing animal. Pliosaurs were like the whales of their day, so they would obviously have the surface to breathe. You know, one of the reasons people, you know, scoff at the idea of, of plesiosaurs in Loch Ness, for example, I'm sure you know you've addressed that, because with these things would be coming up for air all the time, people would be seeing them, but they're not. So, well, one, one way I've got around that problem is to hypothesize that they may be doing the butt-breathing thing like some turtles are doing. And politicians. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's, there's another aspect of that that people don't realize is that a lot of marine reptiles, like sea snakes, for example, get a good chunk of their oxygen through their skin. They're actually able to breathe through their skin. Not completely. They can't get all their O2 that way, but they can get enough that they don't have to surface for prolonged periods of time. I suspect sea turtles have a similar adaptation because they can be stay submerged for several hours and up to seven hours if they're taking a nap on the sea floor where there's no activity. And a lot of turtles brumate which is like hibernation, um, they can sleep on the seafloor or the bottoms of lakes even for months. Yep. So there's got to be some sort of oxygen exchange going on there through the skin or through, like you said, some other adaptation. But in my case, I wanted this where these animals have been, you know, like, like functioning for 65, 66 million years since the Cretaceous. And so what I did was I... Well, in the book, there were flashback scenes that go back to the Cretaceous, Cretaceous flashbacks, they were called, as part of the story. And the, uh, I designed a caldera, um, obviously it's a fictitious caldera, off about 12 miles off the coast of Cuba. Uh, this caldera, if, for people who don't know, a caldera is a volcano that millions of years earlier has had a huge explosion and the entire top two-thirds or more of the volcano is gone. So its structural integrity has, has given way and it has collapsed in on itself. And all that remains is a huge oval or circular bowl-shaped, you know, like, like structure, you might say, and that's all that's left. But the rest of that cone is gone. So I had a marine caldera off the coast of Cuba. And when the asteroid struck that wiped out all, well, marine reptiles from the Cretaceous, except for ice and turtles and all dinosaurs, except the avian dinosaurs, the birds. Um, one of the side effects of this asteroid, besides creating a hundred and something mile crater and wiping out most of the life on the planet, was that there were mega tsunamis formed as a side effect. You know, so much land and sea being displaced and the concussive force, et cetera, spreading out. So the, I've, I've read calculations that there were waves going around that were, when they hit land, that were 1,000 meters tall. Yep. I mean, that's gigantic. That's more than twice the, the height of the World Trade Center. Yeah, it's ridiculous to think about. Yeah. So I had it where during these Cretaceous flashbacks, there was like a, 
mating chase going on where a, a lone female in estrus was being pursued by a bunch of male pliosaurs and such. And this wave swept up her and a whole bunch of them and an entire ecosystem of marine life, fish, squid, you name it. I mean, just cubic miles and miles of ocean all swept up in this immense wave that was so large that it swamped the caldera and kept going. So the caldera was instantly filled with seawater and effectively turned into a gigantic saltwater aquarium. And it was the perfect setup for me because, I mean, obviously there'd be a huge death toll and what, and all that was you know, explained in the book. But a lot of creatures would survive that impact, etc. And now they're basically in an enclosed environment ongoing. You know, and there's, I mean, you have like geothermal heating to explain away effects of ice ages and things like that. But basically they're all in there for all this time period. And they're going to do what animals do once again. They're going to set up shop, you know, and they're going to form their, you know, find their particular niches in terms of, like, the food web, et cetera. You know, it's it just like any other system, food system. So fast forward 65, 66 million years, and the ongoing volcanic tremors that affected the island and the uh, Cro-Magnons, I had some of them living there for the last 20,000 years, something like that. Um, but eventually the caldera splits, at least temporarily, and the sea rushes in and some of the stuff that's in the caldera rushes out before a rock slide closes that gap again. So basically the sole surviving one of these gigantic pliosaurs, which were called Chronosaurus imperator, escape into the ocean along with some Zephectinus, otherwise known as X-fish, and some proto-squid and different things like that. So it was nice to do it in this way because it made it very believable for the reader, you know, to think like, you know, oh, well, there could be some place like that, you know, in the world. I mean, if you look at the Wolemi pine trees from uh, Australia, you know, wow. these are trees from the Jurassic period. And they've got this secluded valley that was safe from, you know, climate change. And I don't mean the climate change we're going through. I mean climate changes and ice ages and everything else like that. And these trees have been around since the Jurassic. I mean, that's incredible. So, sadly, there weren't any Jurassic animals with them. You know, well, but, uh, two again, two populations of them. That's true. No, I meant where, where the pine trees were, though, you know, in that valley. I'm talking terrestrial organisms and such. But, yeah, so, I mean, that was how the, the whole idea behind this story started. And then the, you know, you get into, obviously, the human aspect of it. You've got your protagonists. I have a, you know, a, a male and a female protagonist. You know, they're flip sides of the same coin. One is uh, Jake Braddock is a, uh, a widower whose wife uh, died, actually. She was a, a freediver, and she you know, drowned while competing. And he's been, uh, I guess you'd say, going through, you know, what anybody would go through with such a traumatic loss, et cetera. You know, he spiraled down into alcoholism for a while. Then he pulled himself out of it. And he he gave up his career. He was a professional athlete and started working as a coastal town sheriff in Paradise Cove, Florida. Uh, then you have Amara Takagi, who is the commander, the captain of a research vessel named the Harbinger. And I thought that was a really cool ship that I set up because it was actually a refitted whale killer. And they took, so basically they bought a decommissioned Russian whale killer. You know, the ships that go out with the harpoon cannons on there and, you know, slaughtered whales. And they converted it into a cetacean research vessel instead. So basically you have a ship that originally went out there murdering whales is now doing the opposite. 
and it even has the decommissioned harpoon cannon welded in place on the prow as a reminder that their mission obviously is to, you know, not what it used to be, obviously. So the her and Jake end up sort of allies, but also on a collision course because he starts seeing people that he knows and loves are falling prey to this 80-foot, 100-something ton marine reptile. And the woman, at the same time, she wants to try and capture this creature. She knows it's a threat, so she doesn't think take it lightly, but she doesn't want it killed. It may be and is the last of its kind. And obviously the conflict, it's, it goes from there with them, with this creature. But there are other people that want this animal dead. And it gets very complex, but it, it, it turns into a really nail-biter of a story. I'm yeah, very flattered. You got some really good human villains in there too, like Carl von Freeling. Oh, you know, it's funny. A lot of people like Carl von Freeling. And von Freeling is basically like, can I, can I say a-hole on the air here? Yeah, of course. Okay. He's an asshole. Okay. He's one of these people that, like, I have an uncle like that. You know, they're, they're an asshole, but they're honest about it. Okay. He's a big game hunter. He drinks. He probably he does other things. He shouldn't be doing whatever. And he's 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 an a-hole. I mean, like he, the girl Amara had. We find out a surprise twist. They had a relationship, etc. I don't want to spoil everything, but um, you know, he's a abusive. He's violent. He's vicious. He's 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 a lot of bad things. But then you have the other principal antagonist, who was a senator whose son fell prey to the thing and who's basically lost his mind. Um, he's had that coming, I mean, going on for a while now, but uh, and all this turns into this whole huge sort of it's almost like Moby Dick with dinosaurs, but worse because you've got so many conflicting parties all on this one ship, the Harbinger, at sea, with the ship being slowly taken apart by this creature attacking it, and they're trying to kill it, and people are trying to survive, and it's just you know it has a really great climax, and I was very flattered with. I mean, yeah, it was a big hit, first off, especially for somebody's first novel. For a debut novel, you know, to do so well was very flattering. But, you know, people liked it. They, I mean, you know, when somebody says that it was the scariest book they ever read and, you know, she could only take it in doses because she'd have to, like, read a scene and then she'd have to stop and then she would, she, she bragged online on, on her review that she cleaned her whole house in two days because she would read a scene and then she'd clean a bathroom. And then she'd go back, she'd be calm enough to go back to it, then she'd read another scene, and then she'd clean the kitchen. You yeah. know? And then this was how she passed her two days reading the book and everything, so that she could take it in small doses, because there are some very scary and horrifying scenes in the book. And I'm very descriptive when it comes to writing. I don't hold back. So, you know, I try and really put you in the hornet's nest, so to speak. And, you know. Well, what, what nobody saw coming after the first book is that you were going to go in a completely different direction. With a totally unexpected direction with the story. How well, you, in terms of like the the whole time jump thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean there were like uh, uh, there were two books like a novella and a novelette released also, and the novelette was the um the, is the prologue, Cronus Rising Diablo, and which was I could not believe how I guess it was. Also, it was inexpensive. It was only it's only a dollar ninety nine, but uh, for the Kindle version. But uh, you know, people were buying so many of these things; it was blowing my mind. I mean, Authors DB rated it as they listed it as one of 2016's top ten books, and not based on numbers. I mean, based on like popularity and, and 
the quality of the story. But Diablo is the story of what happens on Diablo Caldera. That's what the Cuban government calls the Caldera. Nobody goes there because it's so dangerous. It has like ragged reefs around it that destroy ships, etc. And you know, people believed it was haunted, etc. So um, it stayed isolated. But Diablo Caldera is where the Pliosaur came from, and where other prehistoric creatures may and do exist, etc. And it also had a um, like a tribe of Cro-Magnons that had been living there for like 20,000 years that had landed there via like you know, primitive boats and settled on the island. And they actually, they, they worship these creatures as their gods and sacrifice like the, the dead to them and criminals and things of that nature. And the whole story of how this caldera came apart with this volcanic activity and what happened to the people and the thing escaping, it's all included in Diablo. And it was a very... Uh, I guess you'd say suspenseful story. It's just nonstop. Then there was a, nove- uh, a novella name called Cronus Rising Plague, which sort of takes place between novels one and two. And it's sort of, it basically tells you some of the stuff that happened after Paradise Cove, after this whole disaster and so many people died, etc. Because the, uh, the pliosaurs, and this is a thing I want to explore, have pathogens bacteria and such diseases that date back to the Cretaceous. And these things have been hibernating in the caldera for all this time. And uh, I wanted to play around with that a little bit. I didn't want it to just be a disease that, a plague that got out that, you know, would could wipe out the human race, because I theoretically would have the potential to do that. But it has sort of that, uh, I don't want to call it the undead aspect to it, but People that get affected with it, they they don't really change, per se, into reptiles, but they start getting these nasty, horrific side effects, you know, like sort of like scaly blisters on the skin and uncontrollable drooling, and their eyes look like a red snappers, but they do become like mindless feeding machines until the point where they die, and they're highly contagious. But the... uh, you know, plague was good because it let me play around with the idea of, uh, like, everybody knows, like, mammals didn't really have much of a shot until after the, quote, I'll call them real dinosaurs disappeared. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, we really didn't. There were no big mammals or anything, you know, and our, our most distant ancestors were, like, tree shrews or something. So it's yeah. pretty hard to get something going. If you're on a branch and some raptor walks by and plops, pops you off like an hors d'oeuvre, slaps you in their mouth and keeps going, you know, so much for that genetic line or whatever. So, you know, I wanted to play with that a little bit, and I explored the idea, which was discussed in, in the first Kraken novel, which you're talking about, the big time jump, et cetera, where, uh, you know, they're studying this disease, and they notice that reptiles aren't really affected by it. It's more like a body temperature environment for the bacteria. Like they exposed an alligator to it, and the alligator's antibodies were able to slowly but surely fight it off, and it really didn't suffer any effects. So it's more of like a, it's more like mammals. It's a mammalian type of disease. And with the idea being that this could have contributed two mammals also never having much of a shot or getting any rise to dominance while the dinosaurs were here for so long because it would be so highly contagious. You know, like, let's just say, uh, I, I'm not familiar with a lot of small prehistoric mammals in that time period, but let's just say some sort of, like, 
tree shrew or whatever it was, okay, that lives in colonies, et cetera, and one of them gets nipped by a dinosaur, and it gets infected with this. Now, this animal, this mammal, obviously is a carrier, and it's also going to get, like, rabies from hell. So it's basically going to go around biting everything else it can, et cetera, et cetera, and actually, you know, an entire species could be wiped out by it. So the theory being that the, the dinosaurs, not just these marine reptiles, the pliosaurs, but other dinosaurs were carriers of this, these pathogens, and that pathogen also contributed to keeping mammals in check during their reign. So just something as a writer I played around with a little bit. Well, you know, if you want to know what these uh, Mesozoic mammals were like, there's still one alive in Cuba called the Selenodon. I think it goes back 73 million years, and it's a little shrew-like animal. And you noticed it's in Cuba, you said. Yeah, for real. Coincidence? I wonder. I don't know. Uh, might have escaped from the caldera. You never know. That is a real Mesozoic mammal. That's oh, I believe you. So, um, but in terms of what you were saying about going in an entirely different direction, um, the, you know, like, like, it's hard to keep a reader's interest when you're doing the same story rehashed over and over again. You know, there is a winning formula, but if you go to the well, as the saying goes, as an old editor of mine used to say, too many times, you're taking a big chance in doing that. You don't want to lose your audience, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's an author whose books I used to read, and she's an amazing writer. And I'm not going to, you know mention her name or her books or anything like that but I I read like one of her books and it was like the third or fourth one in the series and I was like oh my god this is incredible and I was instantly hooked I went on Amazon I ordered like five or six more of them okay and they were great they were great they're great but I started noticing that she stitched these stories together each story was centered around some character who was going through something, okay, and they, they were transforming. Uh, let me just put it that way. Like, and there would be, it, so the main story of the book would be this hero and what he was going through with his transformation and, you know, fighting the bad guys and all this stuff, okay, and, and finding himself and his character arcs being solved, et cetera. But at the same time this was going on, there would be a supporting character in there. And this character you would see was appearing here and there, et cetera. And it soon became obvious to me that the next book was going to involve this character. And it eventually started being the same story told over and over and over again. And after a while, I was just like, I stopped reading the series. And I just, you know, and that was it for me, you know. And that's why I, I learned from reading her stuff that if you go to the well at too many times, and don't get me wrong, she has a gigantic following, and she's a huge bestseller, okay. But... You know, for me, I couldn't do it. You know, I'm just an indie author. I don't have a huge publishing house putting a million dollars of publicity behind my stuff or anything like that. You know, so I have to rely on people loving my, my books. So, well, so it, I think it's safe to say that the Kraken trilogy is set in the Kronos Rising universe, but it's its own story, a self-contained three-part story. Right. Well, what happened with that is, originally, Cronus Rising was the first book, and then Cronus Rising Kraken was to be the second book. And the concept behind that was, I moved things 30 years into the future. And I did some 
tragic things to some of the characters from the first book, the survivors, et cetera, that people did not see coming. You know, a lot of people were upset because they have these characters that are so passionate about and devoted to and love. And that's very flattering, but at the same time, you don't make an omelet without breaking a couple of eggs, as yeah. the saying goes. Okay? Although I pulled the wool over a few people's eyes anyway. Um, but, you know, I moved the story 30 years into the future. And what I wanted was, I wanted a world that had been changed by the existence of these prehistoric marine reptiles. And as we found out at the end of the very first book, the creature wasn't the only one. It had given birth, and there were younglings, we'll call them, etc., out there. A lot of them. Okay? And so, you know, I crunched the numbers, and I was trying to figure out, based on, like, whales, how quickly whales mature, can breed, etc. Um, you know, I wanted to see how these creatures would replicate and their numbers, you know, going on and on and on. Keeping in mind, you know, they, they breed like sea turtles where you're, you know, having like 80 or 100 at a clutch and yeah. five or six times in one season. You know, you're talking big numbers, especially where, you know, we don't have a lot of sharks left, courtesy of the uh, all the finning and everything like that, okay? You know, the shark finning and stuff. Yep. Shark fin soup does not cure ED, people. Get some Viagra. Well, Leave the sharks alone. When, when the first Kraken book came out, I was drawn to the idea that you were creating a world along the lines of something like Arthur C. Clarke or Robert Heinlein would do, and I was very impressed with that. I've never read their books, but thank you. I mean, well, I, I have. Well, I could see. I mean, you know, you weren't trying to copy them, but but that leap into the future and trying to do speculative fiction about well, what would happen if we this actually happened? How would it affect the world, and how would that world look three decades into the future? And it was a, it was fun to invent too, because I calculated that. You know, by the time people started realizing, after let's say 20 years or more, like the, the first of these pliosaurs appeared, you know, was confirmed and stuff, you know, by then there were already hundreds of thousands of them. Hundreds of thousands of them. Just like there used to be 400,000 uh, blue whales at one point. Okay? Yeah. And uh, eventually their population topped out at over a million, I think, according to the numbers. Because there were so many would survive because there were so few predators to compete with them. That's where I was sorry I was going with that with the shark thing and stuff. But, um, so, you know, these animals and other creatures that escape with them, like huge predatory fish and things like that, would have a tremendous impact on the oceans. I mean, first off, you know, going out in any boat that wasn't the size of a destroyer was effectively suicide. You were taking your life in your hands. So that, there was that industry was messed up. So many people were getting killed, boats sunk, people eaten by these creatures, etc. But you also saw the effects of fish stocks crashing all different ones, you know. I mean, these animals would be wiping out so many different species. Anything that was slow, that was not a, used to a, a predator the size of a sperm whale coming at it at, with speed and stuff was in trouble. So, like, manatees were gone, uh, you know, uh, manta rays kissed them goodbye, big sharks, whale sharks, basking sharks, uh, even great whites were getting wiped out. You know, it was like if you weren't fast and agile enough to escape these creatures, your your number your days were, were numbered. You know, I mean, your billfish would actually blossom from this because they weren't be 
getting killed by people anymore, you know, the recreational fishermen, longliners, et cetera, and they, they were fast and speedy enough and tuna and things like that, but most fish stocks were crashing, and that affected the economy of the world of after a while. You know, and then, and worse, and then you have people start getting sick from, you know, somebody would catch, like, let's say, a tuna that had been chased by a plyos or nicked, and it was carrying the bacteria, but it hadn't expired. And they eat this fish, and all of a sudden you've got a bunch of people, a whole village or something, comes down with this Cretaceous cancer, is the name I, I gave to it. And so pockets of this plague starting to spread also is part of the backstory with the first Cronus Rising book. But the book was supposed to be just one novel, see? And when I first mapped it out, which was back in 2005, after I finished the first you know, rendition of Cronus Rising, it was planned to be one book. But over the time that it got to, I finally got around to doing the writing past the outline stage, the, you know, the book was enormous. There was no way it was going to be a single volume. And I think each book is average like 550 pages. You had, so, to do a, you had to do a George Lucas and chop it up into pieces. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, so what I did was, though, I, I, I had to talk to, the, you know, my, my publisher about it. I said, look, it's never going to work. I was like, this book is gigantic. I'm a third of the way in, you know, and I'm already at 560 pages. We have a problem. And he said, well, can you break it up? And I said, well, uh, I can't close all the character arcs, you know, for this in the first book. I can, you know, sort of bring a semi-climax to it, et cetera, and all that, and then feed into the next one. So that's what we ended up doing. And then I thought it was going to be a two-book series. It ended up being a three-book, like you said, a trilogy. Okay? But, uh, you know... It's it's a obviously a popular trilogy, and uh, you know I mean I've been harassed on social media for years and years from people wanting the next book and stuff. I have hate mail, <laughs> saved emails from people. When is the next book coming out? You left me hanging. How could you do this to me? You didn't tie up all these plot lines. You left me, you know, all this stuff. I got harassed in my physical therapist one time. I walked in. Boy. I'm not kidding. And my my therapist, he must have blabbed about who I was. And he's working on this woman, like uh, she's like black hair, short hair, and all. And they're talking. And I walk in, I'm like, "Hey, Tom." And she turns to him, and I hear her go, "Is that him?" Like that. And he goes, "Yes." And I'm like, "This is when you walk in, and somebody says, "Is that him?" You know, that's, this is never a good thing. <laughs> so I got harassed for weeks about you know cracking volume two from this person. But you know, it, it, it is what it is. I mean, Rome wasn't built in a day. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I'm old. I got injuries. I got, you know, I Are can't you, just crank, crank out, you know, 2,000 pages a day nonstop. At this point in time, are you done with the Kronos Rising universe? Um, or what? Well, let's put it this way. I haven't decided yet. Okay. I have one, two, three. At least three books mapped out for the the universe, um, and and technically the the trilogy is was supposed to be book two. Exactly. Oh, okay. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I have a, a a prequel like mapped out, for example, and I have another book after Crack and Three planned out. I wouldn't pick up right where that one left off or anything like that. It would be a you know a whole new ball game. But and I mean there's you know a, a lot of desire for 
another book. I mean, if you look at the reviews for, you know, Crack and Volume 3 on there, um, with the exception of some douchebag troll, everything is a five-star review. <laughs> I think yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that freaking piece of... Everybody's a tough guy uh, with their keyboard. But um, if well, you look at... I'm starting... I'm probably maybe two chapters in, and I'll get you a book review soon. Oh, thank you. That would be very kind of you. I just was – what I, I was saying is, is that um, I've noticed like when I've, I've read some of the reviews, you know, every single one, I'm just going to read their, the last sentence. I hope the series continues. I'm eagerly awaiting more. There will be more, right? You know, anxiously awaiting any forthcoming books. Let's see here. Definitely need to get going on the movie series. Okay. I haven't seen this one yet. Um, what else? Hope there is another one in the future. Look forward to see what Max's next book is. You know, no point in stopping now. Full speed. I mean, every review wants more. They, people were so happy with it because, you know, everything that you couldn't squeeze into the first and second Kraken books, meaning how all the character arcs come together and stuff, you know, everything is resolved, at least all the major stuff, in the end of this thing. And it's very cataclysmic very exciting, it's very emotional, you know, there was a lot of thought went into putting all this together, twists and turns, people did not see coming, you know, major character deaths that, thank God, I didn't get any lynch mobs like coming my way and stuff, but, you know, I, I'm happy with the end result and the readers are happy, so that's the most important thing. But you probably, your next project is going to be something completely different, just to well, I, if, I I haven't decided. Like I said, I may take a break from it. I may not. You know, I may go into an entirely new genre altogether. Uh, I mean, I'm my own boss, so yeah. you know, I I do what I want, and uh, you know, I just want to write stuff that I'm passionate about, and that I I want to produce something that my readers are going to enjoy, and it doesn't have to be pliosaurs eating megalodon sharks and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, you know. I know from being your friend that you're a big fan of Robert E. Howard and the Conan series. Oh, gosh. I read so many of his books starting when I was like maybe 13. Maybe you want to do something along those lines. I mean, anything's possible, believe it or not. Um, before I ever started writing the first Cronus Rising book, I used to read a lot of books like by um, Terry Brooks and Robert E. Howard and um, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Oh, I love Edgar Rice Burroughs. One of the first books I ever read was A Princess of Mars. Yeah, awesome book. And, you know, so, it, you know, if, if you're familiar with those books, you'll, you, you'll see my writing style has a sprinkling of all those authors. You know, I've picked up some of their lingo, some of their, you know, styles, stylistic things, etc. You know, I mean, everybody has their own way of doing things, but, you know, you can't help but be influenced by, you know, so many great writers, people that, you know, whose books you've read, especially when you're a, an adolescent, I guess you'd say. But, um, you know, whatever the next book is, um, and I can't say, you know, but uh, it won't be long in waiting, let's put it that way. And, uh, you know, I, I want people to really, you know, enjoy it. So I'll do the best I can. 
Well, you know, I've heard nothing but great things about the new book, and I, I, what I've read so far, I'm happy with. So. Um, How did you like where I picked up from the colossal cliffhanger on I left people hanging on um, from Kraken 2? Yeah, that was nice. Because <laughs> everybody was like, what? Wow! Oh my God! I mean, like the, you know, people were very excited about that. That nobody saw that coming, you know. And yeah. I don't want to spoil anything for people and saying what it is, but you know, this was uh, it was like I really did a lot of misdirection to set well, that up. When I first started to read the book, I opened it up on my Kindle. And I was over, I didn't realize it until I had read a few pages. I was over in the epilogue, and I was like, what the hell? And then I finally realized that I was at the very end, and I was like, oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> I had to go all the way back to the beginning and start over. I first, first thing I read was, was the epilogue, and I'm like, okay, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I don't want to go into it any more than that. Spoil it. People. Do you want to talk about this nonfiction project you're working on? No. All right. Forget I mentioned it. Let's uh, let's talk about some real sea monster stuff that's been happening lately. Okay. Like the uh, the mystery shark off Cape Cod. Oh, the one that that. That weird one. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, you would think, like, I mean, it's it's a big shark. Uh, There's nothing to compare it to. They said it was bigger than their 22-foot boat. Um, You know, when it comes toward the boat in the video, it looks like a, a gray white. You know, the head shape looks like the shape of a white shark. The coloration looks like the colors of a white shark. And it looks like you could possibly even see teeth, although some basking sharks from the front when their mouth is open like that, it does sort of create that illusion. But when they do that, they have their gills are flared out already. You know, they're drawing in water. So it doesn't seem to have those in the front. So it looks like a great white from the front. But then it turns, and it seems to have these very large gills that basking sharks are known for. You know, they go way up on the fish. And the dorsal is not crystal clear. It's sort of like indeterminate in terms, in my opinion. But the uh, the tail does not look like that of a great white as much as it does a basking shark, I think. It seems like a little longer, like the upper lobe. And the uh, I think it's the anal fin is fairly large. And that is basking shark to me. Yeah. So I took the video and I sent it to a, uh, a top marine biologist I know who I will not throw into the bus on here. But, um, I mean, the man swims with these fish. You know, he swims with giant whale sharks. He swims with basking sharks and everything else. On, I mean, the guy's done sonograms on pregnant whale sharks the size of a bus just yeah. to give you an idea while well, they're swimming, okay? So yeah. he's in the thick of it. And I showed it to him, and he goes, well, he goes, I'd say, uh, you know, looking at the gills and stuff, it's a basking shark. He goes, though the head does seem kind of white sharky to me, as he put it and stuff. But uh, I'm 
fairly sure it's a basking shark goose, but I would not jump in the water. I'm not that confident. I wouldn't jump in the water with it, you know, to see, like, you know. And so he wasn't completely sure, you know, which tells me a lot, okay. And the other thing is, and some some readers, you know, on one of the fan groups was saying stuff, like, you know, the way the thing moves, it turns very sinuously and agilely. And that seems more like a white shark than a basking shark, you know. And also, it comes right up to the boat with that curious look. And like people say, basking sharks typically don't do that. You know, a white shark is looking like, is there food here? Are you edible? Can I grab you off that boat and pull you Are in? Are you familiar with the Montauk monster of 1978? Yes, I am. This is what this reminds me of. Yeah, but from the, the, the shot from above with the Montauk monster is a little more conclusive. Also, it looked like it was injured. Like maybe it's it had been hit by a ship or something, like it suffered a ship strike. Like it's it's caudal region, all that from from like the pelvic fin's back is like really twisted. So I don't know, but um, you know, like uh, it's just I mean whatever it is, it's a big shark. You know, one reader had posed the same question that you had told me when we had discussed this, the possibility of whether a great white and a basking shark might have interbred. Yeah. And, you know, like like we had said, and I think a reader had like, like they must have been reading our minds or something, but had pointed out, well, it would have had to have been a, a male white shark and a female basking shark because the reverse never would have worked. And that's certainly true. I can't picture a, you know, a male basking shark coming up to a 20-foot great white no. and trying to gum her. You know, like, oh, oh, come on, baby. How oh. about it? You and me, huh? <laughs> it's how you end up becoming dinner. You know, as unlikely as it sounds, nobody would have thought that sturgeons and paddlefish would have been able to, to cross breed, but Apparently, in the laboratory, they have. So, I mean, it's, it's not impossible. I know. think it's an accident in a fish breeding facility, but that happened. So, now, the paddlefish are cousins of the sturgeons, but they're different enough that they was thought that they wouldn't be able to interbreed, but apparently they can, at least artificially. And they have entirely different feeding techniques. More or less, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the paddlefish is almost like a filter feeder, isn't it? It is. It's the only freshwater filter feeder that there is that we know and, of. And sturgeons are more like giant shark-like armored carp that eat anything they can suck up on the bottom, including yeah, fish. Bottom feeders. Yeah. Yeah, but, but they are flesh eaters. I mean, they eat, yeah. you know. So, I mean... They, the big uh, beluga and kaluga sturgeons over in... Russia have been known to eat birds. Mm. They come up and, and physically suck birds down their belly. So I mean, it's you know, I mean, it's a million to one, but I mean, it's not impossible. You know, if it's not a basking shark, but it has these weird gills and stuff, and the other possibility is, could it be a species of this? You know, that's supposed to be quote extinct. Well, you know how much. How much uh, individual variation is there physically 
among white sharks? I don't know. I, probably nobody knows. Well, the I can tell you this, based on personal research. Um, I'm sitting on evidence right now that more or less proves, short of a carcass, that great whites can exceed 30 feet in length. According to the calculations, the measurements, we're talking close to 33 feet. And I'm not kidding. Okay? So, uh, and I have the physical proof of it. Um, and it's going to come out, uh, you know, the next few months or so. Yep. And, you know, this is based on statistical numbers and sizes and everything else. Um, I have the physical evidence. And it's going to be quite interesting to see the conversations that come out from this. So is it definitely a great white or is it something else? You know, the guys, like the Super Predator guys, their last thing they put out was they were theorizing that there was a 35-foot white shark living in what they call the kill zone in the Bremer Canyon. Yeah. Um, and that's the Super Predator. I don't think that's what H. Shark Alpha... We're talking about a, a species of Otodus. And I can't remember what the species was. They were talking about a species of Otodus? No, you and I were. Oh, Otodus oblicus? Well, Otodus obliquus was... I think of Basilosaurus, uh, so it may be too old. Yeah, I think that if there's a mega shark, a mega two shark still out there, my bet would be on Carcharocles chubbytensis, which was the direct progenitor of the megalodon shark, but also shared the oceans with it for millions and millions of years. Yeah, well, you see now it's become fashionable to take megalodon and all its ancestors and call them Otodus for the genus. So that's... Listen, if that's what they want to do, that's fine. I'll call it well, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about the same thing. We're just calling it a different thing. Yeah, I think that when these two huge sharks sort of branched off, because originally Chubutensis was the shark. Okay, it got to be around 40 feet in length. It was an apex predator, etc. And then it seems like the what became Megalodon branched off from it, like a population branched off from it, and they started, like, changing and multiplying, obviously, and formed their own species or subspecies, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And I believe that the Megalodon, its teeth changed so that it, it started specializing in feeding on whales, but also it started feeding more on carrion as an adult. And that's why its teeth, those big impact teeth, the maxillary teeth in the front and especially in the center, are different from those of Chubutensis, which seem to look more like those of a giant great white. So its its teeth are not as blocky. You know, the crowns aren't as, you know, like cylindrical. They're not these big bone chisels that Megalodon adults have. So I think what happened there is that you had these animals. They were, you know, both these apex predators. And then one of them started making more and more of a living eating whale carcasses. You know, maybe that region of the world where the, that, you know, offshoot population was, there was a lot of whales, and they found that the carcasses were easier and, you know, it's like a buffet, and they got kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but as a side effect, a negative side effect, they became reliant on those carcasses to survive because they were so slow at that size that they couldn't, the big adults couldn't catch a lot of prey, see? Yeah. Now, 
people that have, you know, you have all these these Megalon fanboys out there and whatever, okay, and they, they rail against the notion, oh, the shark wasn't slow, it was this killing machine that swam at 70 miles an hour and all this, and jumped up in the air and takes planes out of, you know, jumbo jets down, whatever, okay, but at the end of the day, like, one of the arguments that they were, they were whining about on some, uh, some website or something was like, oh, what, where are all these carcasses coming from? I mean, there'd have to be so many carcasses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and all this stuff. And, and it's like, that's impossible. How would there be so many dead whales around and stuff? Okay? But the truth is, if we look at, like, white shark populations, for example, okay, how many white sharks there are in the world? I think, I don't know, right now I heard estimates of 8,000, whatever. But let's just say that there were 20,000 megalodon sharks at one point, not including chubby Okay, just the megalon shark. Okay, I'm gonna show you how stupid this notion is about the whale carcass thing. Okay, see, sharks, and it's a scientific fact. The bigger they get, the slower they get. That's just the way it goes. Part of it is mass, but a big part of it is a cartilage skeleton cannot let you move more than a certain speed because muscle contractions against soft cartilage are not the, the cartilage is not like bone. It's not as strong. So it can't withstand the forces moving the coat off and back and forth in the water. Okay? So my theory is that the smaller megalodon sharks, the 15-footers, the 20-footers even, the 25-footers, these were agile predators. Okay? Would you agree with me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So these sharks now okay, are, let's say, for every, like, the maximum, I think they said the average adult megalodon, according to Shimada's paper from 2019, was around 35 feet for an average adult. Like, just, at, you know, average grade white is, whatever, 16 feet, you know, for females, I think. Anyway, 35 feet. The rare giants could reach or approach 50 feet, okay? So how many 25-footers do you think we have for every 50-footer, in your opinion? I mean, like, look at the great white. We got deep blue, okay. Many. How many? About three times as many, maybe. Well, how many twenty-foot great whites are you aware of? Um, a handful. One or two. Deep blue, and uh, I don't know anybody else to be honest. It's for sure. Okay. Caught was twenty-one feet long, supposedly. Yeah, that's a long time ago. But I'm talking like right now, when you see sharks on TV and everywhere else, how big are the sharks? 14 feet, 12 feet, 16 feet, 18 rarely, and then your, your rare giant is deep blue. Okay? So realistically, you honestly have, for every 20-foot gray white, there's probably hundreds that are 15 feet long. Don't you think? Yep. I mean, you know, you look at all the shark shows. That's, you know your average like shark. So that probably means that for every 50-foot megalon, you have a couple hundred that are 25 or 30 feet long. Okay? Now, what are these 25-foot megalons eating? I'm well, asking you. Well, they be eating? Yeah. But, I mean, what were, the, what were the whales that existed back then? I mean, I know the big whales started evolving the size so towards the end. And, I think Hmm? See the theories? Right. See the things like that. Yeah. These were small whales. They were 20, 25, 30 feet long, most of them. Okay? So probably these 25 and 30 foot sharks are killing and eating those whales, right? 
Yeah. Okay. So you've got, we'll call it, 200 25-foot sharks or every 50-foot megalodon. Okay. Every time one of those 200-foot sharks kills and eats a whale, what's left? A carcass. Yeah. Okay. They they tear at it. They eat some of the good stuff, etc. Then they create carcass. That uh, you had Leviathan and what's the other one? Brigmo Fisiter? Mm-hmm. They were around too. Oh, no, no, I understand that. But I'm just saying is, is just from the shark's perspective with this whole thing about carcasses, okay? So basically, every time one of these sub-adults, you know, makes a kill of a 25-foot whale or a 30-foot whale, it leaves a carcass. It can't eat the whole thing. The whale's bigger than it, Okay. So it eats the good stuff, whatever, and stuff, and it, it swims away. And other sharks come in, the smaller ones, and they tear at it, and they peck, and they eat, etc. And sooner or later, Big Mama Megalon comes around, smells it, comes calling, and even if the carcass is mostly stripped of all the finer stuff, the rib cage is still in there, and it's still got all the heart and the lungs and all that. She's got them big bone crusher teeth that fit between those ribs and crack them open like a walnut, and she can get all the good stuff. So the point is, is that the young sharks fed the big adult sharks, you know, on a 100 to 1, 200 to 1 ratio. So the big ones were never wanting for food because their progeny were basically feeding them, okay? They're eating and, leftovers of the smaller ones. Right, or even confiscating it, you know, swim right up. I mean, the smaller shark's going to give way, just like the great whites have a hierarchy, you know, based on size. They're okay? capitalistic, too. So any notion that there wouldn't be any carcasses for these sharks is inane. And whoever makes that statement needs to really go sit in, in the dark, on the toilet, and rethink their life. Okay? Honestly. So it's there. That's it's, the proof right there. What now, though? Hmm? What kind of situation do we have now? In terms of what? giant shark out there. Well... I mean, if you look at some of the evidence out there, there's that big blue whale that they talked about, the pygmy blue, I'm sorry, that has that big bite on it from, uh, it wasn't the Bremer Canyon, but they, you know, it was somewhere, in, you know, whatever, X number of miles away. Um, and then there's uh, also um, that uh, the 40-foot whale shark was photographed off the Galapagos, and it has the recently healed bite mark on it four feet across. Yeah. And I personally am sitting on a photo of a humpback whale with its flukes come up out of the water that has a gigantic, perfect shark bite taken out of one fluke, one loop, okay? So, I mean, there are plenty of evidence out there. Something is swimming around taking bites out of these big animals. You know, they're not making a kill, okay? The animal's getting away. I mean, let's be realistic. If you take a make a hit on a 40-foot whale shark, which swims at 3 to 5 miles an hour, and you blast that whale shark and you take out this giant gouge, but you can't finish the job, you're obviously not the fastest fish in the ocean. You know? If you think, based on the bite mark evidence, that there's pretty good evidence that there's some kind of big predatory shark that we are not aware of. That I think that, well, I, I, I told you, I'm already sitting on proof that Great White's top 30 feet. Okay, but I don't think that what's taking some of these other chomps out of things is a white shark because the bite is not shaped the same. A white shark bite is more like an oval, you know, like on end. It's higher 
than it is wide. And that's because a white shark has, um, it has what's called a stricture in its upper jaw, for example, so that it can still maintain some speed. It has a pointy snout, you know. So in order for that to fit, let me look at the mako. It's relative, even more so. So a white shark, if you look at those upper, the maxillary teeth in the upper jaw, that third tooth coming from the center on each side is smaller, and the jaw crimps down. And that gives it a narrower bite than, say, a tiger shark or a bull shark of the same length. Their heads are wider, see. So this, the thing that's taking these bites is more like one of these megatooth sharks, which do not have that limitation. Their heads are wider across. This includes um, angostitans, chubbytensis, and megalodon. Okay. So maybe so, we're dealing with a, a relic population of chubbytensis. It could be, or a subspecies of something else. But, I mean, I, you know, the whale shark... Well, Matt, after all these millions of years that we don't know about. Yeah, I, I've got close-up, you know, high-def photos of that whale shark wound where it's healed. And comparing it to whale shark bites where the uh, the sharks have, you know, like a great white has attacked a whale shark and it's healed. I mean, in a year and a couple months, the changes in the wound are phenomenal. It, it, it's not even recognizable anymore. But this big whale shark with this four-foot bite on it, you can still see individual tooth grooves from the bite. And they're very pointy in places, which tells me that, number one, it's a relatively fresh bite. When I say relatively fresh, I'm thinking six months to a year old. And number two, it's most likely not a megalon because the teeth would be rounder gouges, you know, when, where they come down. And these are really pointy, like a, like a white shark's teeth. And Chubutensis has teeth more like a great white than a megalon. So it, it's a possibility, you know. I mean, it's not imaginary. Something's going around putting giant munch marks on these animals. So it's got to be something, you know. Yeah. It's not, it's not well, Rosie O'Donnell. Shifting gears. Yes. How did you get off on this Kodiak Island uh, sea monster sonar graph? How did that get on your radar? I, gosh, I don't know. I do so much research, you know, for, for books and things like that. Um, and I saw that many years ago online, like probably 15 years ago, on a guess. But the, uh, and I've seen the, uh, you know, uh, there was a website that had the original graph on there. And I still have the link to that website. And interestingly, the website is gone, and the graph image is gone as well. And I didn't, I don't think I saved it, scarily enough. The first place I ever saw that image mm-hmm. was in Ivan Sanderson's uh, Investigating the Unexplained book from 1972. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that the original is different from that one. Yes. The, uh, the website that originally had it was specializing in, in this Kodiak Island monster, whatever they were calling it, stuff, and they had like statement from the uh, you know the captains and stuff, and then they had a, a picture of the actual graph that had come from the boat. It was a paper printout of the image of what was under their boat, and it looks nothing like what you see on the internet now. And I, you know, people can call you a conspiracy theorist all they want. Those two words is just a political weapon to try and make somebody look like a wacko. 
okay? Oh, he's a conspiracy theorist and stuff like that. He's crazy. But I saw the original image. And what's out there now is a fake. It is designed to look exactly like a plesiosaur. I mean, it has the head, the neck, the four right. flippers, the tail, the I nine yards. It looks like, it looks like A.C. Odeman's hypothetical giant long-neck seal that was built like a plesiosaur. Right, but that's not the original image. It's supposed to be 200 feet long. Right. The original image, first off, was not near the bottom, like that thing they're showing you there. You had the boat up top in the original image on the graph, and this thing was below the boat, and not that far below, but above the bottom, okay, more than midpoint up. And it was moving in a straight line. It was almost completely straight. And now, I don't know which end is the head of the tail, okay, but it had like a... Uh, a short portion that some people were saying was a tail, okay? And then you saw like a, a drop-down portion that somebody, people were thinking was a flipper, and then a body, and then this long thing hanging in the back that everybody was concluding was a neck with a little bit of what could be construed as a head at the end, okay? So it looked like it had like only two flippers, but the flippers were at the other end farthest away from what they're calling the long head neck, okay? What I believe this thing is, what was under that boat, was some sort of immense squid. And I believe that what they think was the fin was this thing's caudal fin on the squid, you know, at the top? Where yeah. It, yeah. It, and it, when they move, that thing vibrates up and down. It undulates through the water. And when they took that shot... Hmm? They swim like a manta ray with those flaps. Right. And that's what's looking like a flipper hanging down, is the downstroke of that fin, okay, yeah. at the top of its mantle there. And the, so you've got the tip of the mantle, you've got the drop-down part, you've got the mantle itself and the head of this thing, and the long stuff out back are the tentacles dragging behind it. Yeah. That's what it looked like to me. You know, people were saying, oh, it's a Bacillosaurus, you know, and that was like a valid argument because it'd have a small head and then a body and then flippers up front, like, you know, a Mosasaur, but missing the back to whatever, and the long tail. But it was in a straight line, and I'm telling you, to me, it looked like a gigantic squid just swimming straight backwards under the boat. And it was probably looking at the boat to see if it was, you know, potential there, prey. There has been serious speculation in the past about... Giant squid getting up to 150 feet long, so that's at least in the size ballpark. Well, actually, there's that one, gosh, A.G. Starkey, I think his name was, and from World War II. That, that, that guy was on a, um, a British trawler, a military trawler. They were out there putting, like, submarine lights down, like lights to detect enemy submarines, long strings of lights in the water. And I think that's what drew this thing to his, their ship. And he was up on the deck smoking a cigarette or something, and he saw something in the water, some weird glowing green thing, and he looked and he realized it was an eye, the eye of a ginormous squid. It was right next to their boat. And he was, like, scared, and he started walking back and back and back, and he realized that the squid went from stern, you know, from bow to stern. It was the same size as their ship. And the ship was over 175 feet long. Yeah. So 
you know, squid are attracted to bioluminescence. That's how they got the first giant squids on video. Remember? Yeah. They yep. used that to lure it into the bait and stuff. You know, the same thing. They were lowering strings of lights down there. The squid came along. It was either looking for a mate or lunch, one or the other. You know, it looked at him, and he said it just sort of, like, swelled up a little, and then it just, whoosh, just silently jetted away with no effort, you know. So, I mean, think about it. That's, that's the same size range of the Kodiak, you know, monster or sea monster, whatever they're calling it, you know. It makes sense, then, that something like that would be under their, under their ship in that region passing by. I mean, you've got the blue whale gets about 100 feet long, 90 feet long. 110, 115 is the record, something like that. And then you've got some sauropod dinosaurs that got, what, 125 feet, maybe? Mm -hmm. I don't know the exact. So, you know, vertebrates, the really big ones, are approaching that size, but they can't seem to get over that hump. So what, what, what I'm trying to say is it sounds more likely that it would be a, a, a giant cephalopod if it's what it appears to be, if it was a real animal on the sonar. Well, yeah, I mean, they, that, that was their impression, and I, I cursed myself for not sa saving a screenshot of it. I don't think I did because I didn't think it was going to go anywhere, you know. Yeah. But I'm telling you, I'll, I'll swear on a stack of Bibles to this. You know, the the thing that's going around now that's supposedly the sonar image is absolutely a fake. Well, I can I can put that on the slideshow for this episode. The other version, yeah. some people will know what we're talking about. Yeah, I could actually draw from memory well, a pretty good I'll, rendition. Slideshow. Yeah, I could draw a pretty good rendition of what that the, the sonar graph, the image looked like. You know, I got a fairly good picture in my head of it, and you know, my original college degree was in film and animation so I can draw um, you know so yeah I'll try and put something together for you you know but uh, it's uh, I'm telling you it's not what what is out there now so right. somebody uh, you know it's just like that that don't you remember when that that um, thing about uh, what was that sound they were talking about um, blue? Not, not the bloop um, God, Julia that one and supposedly the um you know the sound is heard annually in the spring in the same region and they um they said that they like a, the satellites took a picture of a shadowy form moving through the water at the same time that the sound's heard each year i believe it's in the spring and they said it's impossible to be a living thing because whatever it is is twice the size of the Empire State Building. Yep, I remember this. Yeah. So, and I, I had, you know, shared a, a post about it or whatever, and I got attacked immediately. People saying, oh, because some of the stuff in the post was inaccurate. They said it was from an Apollo mission and this and that. But the truth is, is it was from a NASA satellite. And they said in there that they redacted the images or image of this thing before, I mean, you know, it, it wasn't supposed to be released. And somebody put it out on the Internet, and then they redacted it, meaning it got pulled. It got scrubbed. And you can scrub imagery and stuff like that from the web. People, yeah. oh, you can't do that, conspiracy theorists. No, you can't. NASA obviously did it, okay? Of course, some people may still have copies of this thing. You never know. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but point is, is this type of thing does happen. There is a precedent for it. Yep. I don't get it. What are people afraid of? Well, I guess the idea of if there was a living creature down there that was, you know, a kilometer in length, that would be terrifying because that's big enough to damage an aircraft carrier, okay, that's or any size. Amphibious. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're talking Kaiju Pacific Rim stuff now, you know. Yeah. But So I could see that being scary, you know. But a squid that's 175 feet long or 150 to 200 feet, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I wouldn't want to encounter one unless I was on a, you know, a cruise ship or something. But, you know, I mean, it's not the end of the world, you know. Well, how big was the Kraken in your book? I based mine on the... Octopus Gigantis was supposedly, the, you know, the St. Augustine monster thing, but also from um, Mark McMenamin's estimates on the size of the Triassic Kraken. So uh, the octopuses in my novel, I think the smaller one, the male was like 120 feet long and the female 140, yeah. you know, head to tentacle tips, you know, swimming in a straight line. So... Females tend to be larger with cephalopods. The Augustine monster had been an octopus. The estimates were that the tentacles stretched out from one end to the other would have been would have covered a football field. Yeah, it would have been sizable. Sadly, apparently, it turned out to be whale blubber. Yeah. You never know. I trust no one nowadays. You know. I mean, like. You know how hard it is to get Bigfoot DNA tested and stuff, you know? I know. Yeah, uh, so. It reminds me of the circular argument about reworked fossils. They mm-hmm. argue that, well, there are no dinosaurs or marine reptiles past the Cretaceous period because we don't find their fossils. Then you point out the reworked fossils. And they say, well, they must be reworked because dinosaurs and marine reptiles went extinct 65 million years ago. How do you know that? Well, we don't find their bones past the end of the Cretaceous. See what I'm talking about? Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's... A, I mean, it's... it's, it's I a, find paleontologists, as, as generally speaking, are extremely, like, cautious beyond cautious. They're beyond conservative. I don't mean their political views when it comes to like estimates on creatures and stuff like that. You know, they're, everybody's afraid to stick their neck out. Everybody's afraid to say what they might think or feel and stuff. You know. Look at the about that egg that was found. They mm-hmm. still haven't made up their mind what the hell that was. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting though. Yeah, but, I mean, absolutely. The, uh, I it's a mosasaur though. You know, I mean, I was just looking at a post earlier on social media about Sachikosaurus. You know, that pliosaur they found. I think it's in, um, I don't know if it's Colombia or where it was found. Yeah, I know what you're talking about, yeah. But it was a, a very large pliosaur. And, you know, they have like, you know, they're saying, oh, the, the skeleton's 10 meters long. So this is how big the species got. Okay? So the first thing is, that's ridiculous, okay, to say that. It's like if you found, if you were walking along a, a dry riverbed in, in Africa and by the Nile River and you found 
a, a, the, the top portion, the skull of a Nile crocodile. And you said, oh, a Nile crocodile skull. This is how big they got. What would the odds be of you having a really big Nile croc skull in your hands? I mean, think about it. We know they get to 20 feet, but the average specimen is more like males or like, what, 12 to 14 feet? Something like that. Yeah. So right away, for you to turn around and say, this is as big as a species got, you'd have to be out of your mind. Okay? But this is what you see going on with Sachikosaurus. That's the first thing. Okay? The second thing is, so, you, you know, you're talking, you're, you're sampling error, sampling bias. That's the term. Okay? There's a lot of sampling bias going on there. Okay? The other thing is, Sachikosaurus is missing most of its caudal vertebra. They're gone. Okay? Bitten off, probably. You know, interesting that that happened to it and Kronosaurus poyacensis, come to think of it. And that's yeah. probably, in my opinion, how it died. You know, some larger version came up, bit its rear off, it bled to death, you know, et cetera. But whatever the case may be, the point is it's missing all that, okay? And we know that pliosaurs have a tail that's pretty much the length, normally, of their head and neck. You know, it balances them out in the water. And most of that's missing. So this creature's missing probably around two meters of its length right there. So really, you know, you see these illustrations, and it looks like a penguin with this tiny, short tail, stubby tail. It looks ridiculous. But nobody's going to come out and say, oh, well, it says in the report that the, the caudal vertebrae are, are probably missing, et cetera, so I'm just going to make this stubby-tailed mutation, okay, and to say it only got to be 10 meters in length. When in reality, it was probably 12 meters long, and the report also says, the paper says, that it was a confirmed juvenile. It's a young. If adult. I remember right, the Sheikasaurus looks very much like Barkachanius. It does. Yeah. So, I mean, think about it now. Right? So, if you look at sub-adult Nile crocs, they're more like 10 feet long. You know, they're not 12 feet, they're not 14 or 16 feet or anything like that. See? So, you know, I asked the pliers or expert on this, and he said, well, if it's this size, I would think the adults would probably conceivably be 50% larger at least. So now you've got potentially an 18-meter pliosaur on your hands. You know, the species could easily reach that size. Keep in mind, indeterminate growers, okay? But you've got a, you know, not even an adolescent there. I mean, its bones show that it's not even that, okay? So it's 12 meters around, almost 40 feet, okay? The adults are going to be 50% bigger. You're talking a 60-foot predator, okay? I mean, that's on level with the, you know, with Leviathan and, or is it Leviathan? I'm sorry, I'm pronouncing it wrong. With a head 15 feet long? Something like that. I mean, Sachikosaurus has like a nine-foot skull. So, I mean, you know, it would have been one of the world's greatest ever predators. Yeah. I mean, you have that. uh, You know, we know Megalon maxed out at 50 feet now, so this was going to be bigger. You know, Leviathan, I can't pronounce it anymore, oh my God. And then obviously the extant sperm whale, which before they all got killed off by whalers, at one point grew to over 80 feet. So. One of them sunk a whale ship. Mm hmm. From Moby Dick. Ethics. Yes, it's got 18, uh, 20, 20 or 21, I think it happened. Wow, that's the year I was born, dude. Oh my God. What are the odds? Just kidding. Well, you want to wrap it up? I think so. I've got to go, you know, <clears throat> well, author stuff, etc. 
Um, this is going to be my last hoorah until Halloween, because I'm off the Lake Champlain. So. And you will be missed. You don't mind if I let readers know where they can acquire the new novel, do you? No, absolutely. Go ahead. Oh, cool. So, yes, I mean, uh, Cronus Rising Kraken 3. Well, actually, I, I have an exclusive deal with Amazon, um, so your best bet is to go there. I mean, other bookstores and stuff are getting from them, but they're carrying both the physical book and the Kindle version on there. And, uh, you know, feel free to check it out. They have a look inside feature. I think they let you read, like, the first three or four chapters or something like that, so you can really get a feel for the book. And, uh, obviously, feel free to hit me up on social media, on Facebook, or check out the YouTube channel, which I believe is called Max Hawthorne's Video Trailers or something like that. I don't handle it, but it's, uh, you know, getting pretty popular. But thank you, Scott. It's been great being on. I really appreciate it. Every time, you know, you're my friend, and I I enjoy every time you come on the show. And uh, thanks again. And uh, to my audience, I will be back around Halloween. Uh, The plan is to do a two-part episode about the Zio Maru carcass, where we go into all the evidence and debate all the different sides of the arguments. So thank you, Max, and uh, I'll see everyone on Halloween. Have a good one. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martin.